Our scripture reading this morning is from 1 Timothy chapter 3, and this will be verses 8 through 13. Paul writes, Deacons likewise must be dignified, not double-tongued, not addicted to much wine, not greedy for dishonest gain. They must hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience, and let them also be tested first, then let them serve as deacons if they prove themselves blameless. Their wives, like mice, must be dignified, not slanderers, but sober-minded, faithful in all things. Let deacons each be the husband of one wife, managing their children and their households well. For those who serve well as deacons gain a good standing for themselves and also great confidence in the faith that is in Jesus Christ. Well, Jesus was never one to stick to the status quo. Often his words and teachings took his listeners by surprise. They walked away shocked, sometimes even offended. Over the years, some have taken to call Jesus' kingdom an upside-down kingdom. That is one where our assumptions are challenged. One of the things I think this is most on display is what Jesus said to his disciples in the passage Daniel read for us earlier in the Gospel of Mark. Two of his disciples are seeking greatness, and Jesus says, Whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. Jesus came first, not as a king in luxurious power, but as a servant. And it's no surprise then that he calls his church to serve. So we've been studying together the letter of 1 Timothy in the New Testament. This letter is written by the Apostle Paul to his protege Timothy in the first century. And this letter is in part concerned with how the church should be ordered and structured. So there's false teaching taking place at Ephesus. And Paul's eager to instruct Timothy to combat that false teaching by setting up good leadership. Last week, we saw the qualifications for the office of elder. An elder teaches, an elder equips, and an elder shepherds the local church. This week, you come to Paul's teaching on a second office, the office of deacon. So this morning, we're just going to mimic what we did last week. We're going to mimic our outline, and in the passage Aaron just read for us, we're going to see two things, who deacons are and what deacons do. So first, who deacons are. The word deacon literally means servant. Deacons are servants. In fact, when this Greek word diakonos is used in the New Testament, it usually doesn't refer to the office of deacon at all, but to the more broad idea of service. However, in the passage we come to this morning, as Paul is giving specific instructions about how to order the church, we see him give specific qualifications about deacons and seeming to be setting up an office akin to the elder, an office of deacon, a recognized position of a servant within the church congregation. But before we dig in, perhaps you've been in churches in the past where deacons don't operate like we see here. Perhaps you've been in churches where deacons are decision makers. There's a board of them, and they act with perhaps elder-like authority as sort of quasi-elders. Many Baptist churches operate that way. But we're going to notice here that that's not what the Bible teaches at all. 
Deacons are separate from elders. A deacon is a servant in the church, not invested with spiritual authority. Deacons assist elders. They don't compete with elders. So living in the D.C. area, we are well acquainted with this, the Senate and the House, right? So in the U.S. government, these two groups provide checks and balances on one another. And that's healthy, usually. But that's not the way it works in the church. So in the government of Christ's church, elders and deacons are not two houses of Congress. They're not meant to check and balance each other in decisions. They have separate functions and work together for the unity of the church family. Remember we said last week, the local church, as we see as described in Scripture, is ultimately governed by you, the congregation. Yet God, as we see here in his grace, has given two offices to facilitate unity in our family, elders to lead and deacons to serve. So what are the qualifications for these servants? Look there in verse 8. First, deacons are to be dignified. That means worthy of respect. And we see here overlap between the qualifications for deacons and elders, don't we? That shouldn't surprise us. Because for the most part, every trait in these passages, with the exception of just a few, should describe any Christian who desires to grow in Christ-likeness and godliness. As you read this, whether you're an elder or a deacon, or whether you will be an elder or deacon or not, each of you should strive, as sons and daughters of Jesus, to live like this, to strive to live like Jesus. These qualifications just show the qualifications of a mature Christian, for the most part. And that includes what Paul says next. Deacons are not to be double-tongued, literally double-tongued. Two tongues at different times saying different things. In other words, deacons are to be sincere and truthful. Continuing on, last week we saw an elder must not be a drunkard, and here again we see overlap. A deacon also must not be addicted to much wine. That sort of addiction reveals a lack of self-control, a lack of that fruit of the Spirit. And like elders, deacons must be self-controlled and ultimately governed by the Spirit of God. They're to be governed by the Spirit, not spirits. See what I did there? Thank you. There's a right way. I believe there's a right way. I believe Scripture shows that there's a right way a Christian can enjoy beverages of that kind. But that enjoyment must never lead to enslavement. A Christian is a slave to Jesus, not to wine. A Christian escapes to Christ, not to intoxication. Jesus proves to be a much better refuge. We also remember elders were not to be lovers of money back in verse 3. And again, we see overlap. Deacons also are not to be greedy for dishonest gain. Remember, as we'll see throughout this letter, the false teachers were captivated by greed. Deacons must be different. There in verse 9, Paul says, Deacons must hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. Calling the gospel a mystery doesn't mean it's hard to understand. It's not sort of a complicated calculus problem. Now, calling the gospel, and I love this, calling the gospel a mystery as Paul does so often, points to how something that's been hidden is being revealed. The gospel, God's plan to save sinners through his son, is like a wonderfully constructed stage hidden behind a velvet curtain. And as the drama begins, the lights dim, and the curtain is slowly lifted, we see more of the beauty of the stage, the props, the main actors, 
the script. Throughout the Bible, the mystery of the gospel becomes more and more gradually revealed and clarified. That message is one to which a deacon must hold fast with a clear conscience. I think that means that the deacon must live in such a way as the gospel he holds fast actually transforms his life. There in verse 10, Paul continues. He says, we must test deacons before they serve. There there aren't really any shortcuts to becoming a deacon. No, the church must evaluate a deacon's ministry and evidences of his faithfulness. So here at Loudoun Valley, we nominate deacons and then allow three months to pass before we bring that nomination to a congregational vote. This allows us time to get to know those candidates, to observe their ministry. It's not a threatening process. The language here in the Greek actually suggests a testing with a positive, hopeful outcome. So by God's grace, the deacon will, through that testing, prove himself to be one who does love Jesus and does desire to serve his church. Look ahead to verse 12. We'll come back to verse 11 in a minute. A deacon will also be like the elder, the husband of one wife. He will be committed to his spouse, faithful to his wife. And that faithfulness will spread to his children as he manages them in his household in a godly way. Like elders, a deacon's character will be first proven in the home. But back to verse 11, an important question remains. There in verse 11 we read, Their wives, likewise, must be dignified, not slanderers, but sober-minded, faithful in all things. There's no lack of debate as to how to interpret this verse. The clear answer to the debate is that there isn't a clear answer. See, the, the Greek word translated there as wives can also be translated women. It's translated that way in chapter 2. So a question that's been batted around evangelical circles for decades is, is Paul here talking about the wives of deacons or women deacons, deaconesses? Scholars and authors and pastors have gone back and forth. And so let me summarize some of that back and forth for you because I know you're just so interested. We're going to get into the weeds a little bit here. But let me express, explain a little bit briefly their perspectives. First, many see this verse as speaking concerning deacons' wives. So they would point out that that Greek word gune, translated as wife, in the, is translated as wife in the surrounding context. So you look at verses 2 and verses, verse 12. And they would say also, in the flow of thought, it seems strange for Paul to suddenly interject words about women deacons. It would make more sense to talk about male deacons and their wives, especially going into verse 12, where he starts talking about the deacon's family. Also, presumably, if Paul is talking about women deacons, he might use the word deacon in verse 11. But he doesn't. He uses the word women or wives. He might also talk about women deacons being the wife of one husband, like he did for elders and male deacons, but we don't see that. Plus, it does seem plausible that deacons' wives would have qualifications, since possibly they might have more of a hands-on ministry opportunity than they're the wives of elders. Because if, say, a male deacon goes to help a single mom in her home with physical needs, which is what deacons do, it might be appropriate for his wife to come along, for her to have qualifications as well. 
On the other hand, many see this verse as speaking about women deacons or deaconesses. So in, in that perspective, they would point out that that word gune can be translated as woman, like it is in chapter 2. Uh, they would also point out the word likewise there in verse 11. Likewise is often a word that sets off a new category, which might be here female deacons. So it sets off deacons, it then sets off female deacons. Also, if you look at your Bibles, the bulk of your transla translations, I believe, will say their wives, right? But in the original Greek language, there's no there, there. It simply says wives or women, not their wives. That's supplied by context, which might be a good point to consider, but it's not in the original language. Something else this perspective would point out is that why are deacons' wives singled out but not elders' wives? That might be a good clue that these are meant to be women deacons. It would seem that elders' wives would have qualifications as the wives of elders. Of course, as we just said, the opposing view would say, well, there's more hands-on ministry for deacons' wives. And then finally, in Romans chapter 16, Paul uses the word diakonos, deacon, to describe a woman named Phoebe, calling her a deacon of the church. That word could simply mean servant, a more generic term, or it could mean, especially since it's set apart as a specific church, that she's a capital D deacon of the church. As a quick rundown, ink has been spilled a lot on this subject, even YouTube videos, of which I've viewed this past week, so go at it. But let me just cut to the chase and tell you faithful interpreters of God's word have come down on both sides of this issue. There's ambiguity and I believe we need to embrace that ambiguity and wrestle with it. Does this text exclude our sisters from serving as deacons? Well, first of all, it certainly doesn't prohibit them from serving the church in important ways. I mean, Paul took the time to give qualifications, didn't he? But does it prohibit women serving in the office of deacon? I think we just can't come to a clear conclusion from this text. And so as we wrestle with that question, I think it's important to remember the context of Paul's letter. So going back to chapter 2, remember a couple weeks ago we, we uh, kind of addressed the issue of the different roles of men and women in the church. And there Paul was clear that men are to exercise authority in teaching and women are not. This is not a difference, remember, this is not a difference in the value of men and women, but in their creation-inspired roles. So Paul taught, clearly, women are not to serve as elders. He says, not teaching and exercising authority, which he then goes on into elders, showing that they do teach and exercise authority. So our question then is, do deacons do that? Well, in some churches, like we mentioned before, Baptist churches, where deacons have a board, and make decisions like trustees and act like quasi-elders, I think it's pretty clear in those churches women should not serve as deacons. There is spiritual authority and oversight. There is teaching involved in that role. However, in churches with a correct biblical view of the authority of elders and the correct biblical view of the, author or of the office of deacons not threatening or competing with that authority, yes, there will be some practical responsibility that deacons wield, but it will not be the same kind of authority and teaching elders have. Deacons will serve the physical needs of the church. So what's the answer? Churches, and many of you 
Well, some of you who I love in this church will have different opinions. And listen, that's totally okay. In the end, though, I think we must understand the Bible will be clear in some areas and in other areas will be less clear. And in those less clear areas, we must exercise wisdom and prudence and grace towards one another. Our position with that said here at Loudon Valley is to permit and encourage sisters to serve as deacons, as servants who are recognized in this congregation. We have decided not to restrict our sisters in a way that may prove to be unnecessary, but instead equip them to use their gifts for the good of this church and for the good of their own confidence in God, verse 13. So the theologian Wayne Grudem puts it like this. If deacons simply have delegated administrative responsibility for certain aspects of the ministry of the church, then there seems to be no good reason to prevent women from functioning as deacons. And we would agree. We do see deacons as being responsible for administrative and practical needs. And so in that sense, we encourage our sisters to serve in that role. So for example... Uh, sisters may serve as deacons in women's ministry, and that means facilitating events to foster community among Christian sisters, creating opportunities for older women to teach younger women, as we see in Titus chapter 2. That's one example, but in these different examples, we want our sisters to be able to serve and care for our church like that and receive the blessing, the wonderful blessing that is promised in verse 13. We may have different opinions on this passage, but as we seek to interpret and live by God's word, I believe there's freedom in this area. And I believe we can joyfully live together in that freedom. If you have questions, by all means, please talk to me or to Brad or Joe or at one of the other, or those are the other elders. But for now, let's just move along and see there in verse 11 what these women are to be. First of all, they're to be dignified. That's what is described of male deacons in verse 8 worthy of respect. Next, they're not to be slanderous or gossiping. They're to be sober-minded. As John Stott says, clear-headed. And they're to be faithful in all things. In these qualifications, we don't see the qualification of being able to teach. And so it seems clear that elders are the ones who teach and deacons are the ones to serve. If that is who deacons are then, Let's move ahead and see what deacons do. What deacons do. And again, we're going to mimic our outline from last week. I'm, I'm cheating here. And I'm just going to give you three tasks of the deacon. Last week, we gave you three tasks of the elder. Here are three tasks of a deacon. First, deacons are elder helpers. Deacons are elder helpers. Second, deacons are servants. Deacons are servants. And third, deacons are shock absorbers. Deacons are shock absorbers. So first, deacons are elder helpers. We get this idea back in the book of Acts, chapter 6. There we read about the early nascent Christian church, and we read in part, So in those days when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. 
And the twelve summoned the full number of the disciples and said, It is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. The title of deacon isn't used in this text, though the family of words of service, the family of words of deacon is used. And so it's not clear that this actually is tied to 1 Timothy 3 in the office of deacon. There's just no clear connection, except that this is sort of a proto-pattern of what would become those two offices of elder and deacon. So if you look in Acts 6, you see apostles and servants. And there's a pretty clear correlation then to what would later become elders and deacons. So I think it's wise to receive the, the counsel from Acts chapter 6. So in those days, the church is expanding at an incredible rate. And the apostles are recognizing their need then to devote themselves all the more to praying and to preaching this developing, growing, maturing church. And as part of that role, they find that they don't have time for the more practical demands of the church. Not meaning at all that those practical demands are unimportant, simply that they're not able to do all of them. So they set aside seven men led by Stephen for the task. And I think, church, in much the same way in our church family today, there will always be many things that can and should be done to serve this church family. And the elders simply won't be able to do them all. Neither should we. The elders can't always train new nursery workers or schedule set up volunteers or buy more coffee filters or collect the offering or organize women's events. Instead, the elders will need to prioritize prayer and studying God's word and the spiritual oversight of the church. So, enter deacons. Deacons have the incredibly important role then of assisting and freeing up the elders to do what they were called to do, taking things off of their plates so they can focus on the spiritual health of the church. Deacons are elder helpers. Thank you. Thank you for that. Second, deacons are servants. I know that's a bit redundant. That's exactly what the word means. But, but what does their service then look like? Because remember, all church members are servants in some way, right? Many of you serve so faithfully here. I'm still trying to figure out if there's anything Aaron Kay doesn't do. Yet in God's design, we also have recognized some in our midst to lead out in service. When there's an area of service that will take a team, it seems wise to have someone to organize that service, to care for physical needs in the church in that way. At Loudoun Valley, we do that task-based. Some churches will have, el have deacons on, on uh, the job on a Sunday, and basically they take care of everything that needs to be taken care of. And there's nothing in Scripture that says that's wrong or what we do is wrong. There's prudence here. And so we've decided that it helps to have deacons who are over certain areas of ministry. And I hope sometimes those areas are temporary, i.e. deacon of setup. Maybe we won't always need that. Sorry, Kevin, you're not here. 
But it's helpful then to know that we have recognized certain people to have responsibility over practical areas of need. And church, this ought to remind us that we're all servants of Christ. I wonder, do you often think like that? I know many of you do. But do you come to church on Sunday mornings praying and considering how you might serve someone else? Primarily how you might serve them spiritually. Remember what we read at the beginning of our service. The idea of not neglecting to come together, but in every way spurring one another on to fit love and good works. I encourage us. You will be bolstered in your faith. If you come to church, not just thinking about how you need to be fed, which is essential, but looking around, being group aware, seeing if someone is sitting alone, seeing if someone looks discouraged, and not expecting someone else who's more godly and mature than you to pick up those pieces, but to run after them and trust the Holy Spirit will work through you. We are all called to be servants caring for one another. All right, so elder, deacons are elder helpers, deacons are servants, and finally, deacons are shock absorbers. That's not my term. Many others have used this in the past, but I think you can see from Acts 6 where they get it from, right? So there's these Hellenists, and there's these Hebrews. They're different people. And the Hellenists are coming with a complaint. Their, their widows are getting passed over in food distribution. This is a big deal. There's stress. People are complaining. Elders are overwhelmed. Ministry isn't happening as it should. And you start seeing the fissures developing in relationships and unity. And so servants step in to preserve peace and unity. Much like the shocks in your car. I think they're called shocks. I know they're struts and springs and stuff. I don't know cars. But like the shocks or whatever bounce in your car that help to make the, the bumps and ruts of the road feel less bone-jarring, deacons are called to serve and alleviate stress in the church. Deacons are peacemakers. When they see cracks forming, they come to absorb that stress and through physical help, maintain peace. So children's ministry, for example, is, I think, the most quickly stressful areas of ministry in the entire church. I say that having led children's ministry before in other churches. You got parents who are concerned. You got children who are screaming. Meanwhile, the music's starting. We got to get back in. Noses are running. Diapers are leaking. And so to help preserve the unity of the church in this stress, a deacon comes to absorb those shocks and maintain peace to talk to the parents, to care for the children, to staff background-checked, loving volunteers. Deacons are a gift to the unity of the church family, absorbing the shocks that we might transmit to one another, greasing the wheels of ministry. So let me recognize Abby, Kevin, Jason, Corey, and Daniel, our deacons. You, brothers and sisters, make Loudoun Valley more like Jesus. You cooperate with the Spirit of God in maintaining the unity of our body. You're greatly needed and you're greatly appreciated. 
Church family, I'd encourage you to know who these brothers and sisters are. Look them up on their website. Pray for them. Encourage them. Support them. And those of you who are in the office of deacon, I think verse 13 should be an incredible encouragement to you. Paul says, for those who serve well as deacons, gain a good standing for themselves and also great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. I don't know of any Christian that doesn't want those two things desperately. And here it's promised specifically, not to the neglect of other members, but it's promised to those who serve well as deacons in the church. Deacons, isn't that amazing? As you faithfully serve, as you extend yourself and sacrifice your time and your energy, as you absorb shocks, you will grow in confidence in Christ. What a wonderful assurance. If you're feeling burnt out or overwhelmed, grab hold of that assurance. And church family, dear church family, as as we wrap up, I want to encourage us to think about how we might serve this church. I think some of us might be called to serve as deacons and we don't know it yet. I encourage you to pray about that if you feel a passion for a certain area of ministry, physical ministry in our church. I can think of a few areas of ministry we need deacons of right now. A deacon maybe of youth ministry, a deacon of, of member care. We have folks who are helping those things, but wouldn't it be great to have a deacon to organize teams around those things? I've been in churches where there might feel like disorganization and overwhelming care for the elders, and then we realize we've neglected deacons. We have two or three of them. Let's bring more on. It's helped. God's design, believe it or not, gives joy to his church. Think about whether you should be called to be served as a deacon. All of us will be called to serve practically this church with our hands, right? But even more so, all of us will be called to preserve the unity of this church with our service. So let me ask you, members of Loudoun Valley Baptist Church, pray about that. Do you realize that your spiritual health and your spiritual service will not only encourage you spiritually, but will actually maintain the peace and unity of this body? How might the Spirit be guiding you to maintain the peace of Loudoun Valley Baptist Church in your service? You sacrifice your comfort for the love of others. Well, church, this, like much of 1 Timothy, has been a very practical sermon. But it is part of God's good design for his church and something we desire to obey. But as we wrap up, I want us to kind of expand the the wide-angle lens a little bit and think beyond just diaconal ministry in the church to the greatest deacon of the church, a servant of the church, the one who came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life for a ransom for many. The gospel provides the pattern for service, doesn't it? This true king who had everything, who was equal with God as very God, 
and who had all the right in the world to descend to us in powerful, luxurious victory and conquest, instead comes as a lowly baby, a servant. As Brad prayed earlier, not counting equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptying himself. What a king we serve. A king who is a servant. Taking on himself the sins of his people so that if we repent and believe, we will be saved. If you're here and you've never trusted in Christ, don't try to serve this church to get merit with God. Let us serve you first by telling you about this servant. You cannot serve God until he served you. You cannot love Jesus until he's loved you and shown how he has spread his arms wide for your salvation. How he has died and taken on the wrath of God for your sin on himself and then risen again for new life. Turn to him today. If you have questions about that, talk to me. Talk to someone sitting next to you. We'd love to tell you about this servant. And church, as we close, I, I love closing with a song about Jesus' service. About a God, eternal God, who condescended and descended unto us. Who was nothing to look at and yet has given us salvation. May we praise our king servant today and in his example seek to serve one another. Let's sing those great truths, but first let's pray. Lord, we ask that you would be at work in our church As we study in 1 Timothy, your good design for your local church, we ask that you give us faithful elders and service-minded deacons who will preserve the truth and the unity of the truth in our family. Lord, as we think ahead to our members meeting tonight and as we contemplate your service to us in the cross now, we ask that you'd make us a unified body in truth and in love for your glory and not for ours. We love you in Jesus' name. Amen.